This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. Today, I welcome on my friend and colleague, Dr. Joshua Goldenberg, to speak about evidence-based practice within the naturopathic medicine profession, and more specifically when it relates to irritable bowel syndrome and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Dr. Goldenberg is a shining star in the naturopathic medicine research space, especially known for his work in helping push forward research in the IBS and SIBO realm. You can find his work at goldenberggicenter.com and through PubMed by searching for Joshua Goldenberg. We got together to discuss the landscape of research in the naturopathic space, specifically related to IBS and SIBO. We dive into some really interesting conversations about how to read naturopathic research, the power of the placebo effect in IBS, the difference between skeptics and scientists, and which research variables are most valuable in a clinic setting. Things really pick up about 24 minutes into our conversation, and we both agreed that we'll need to have a part two of this discussion. I hope you enjoy learning with us today and walk away with a greater understanding of how evidence-based medicine is playing a role in the naturopathic medicine profession. So without further ado, I welcome you to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Goldenberg, it's so great to connect with you again uh, when you're just chatting offline. And yeah, thank you for being on with us today. Yeah, I'm, I'm jazzed to chat about shared interests here and Hopefully the audience will find it interesting as well. I'm sure they will. I mean, I first, uh, I think, got to know you when you were a student at Bastyr. And then later, as you started educating our our community and our profession on research approaches to practicing natural medicine and naturopathic medicine. And so um, I've always loved hearing you speak. So thanks. Thanks again. Oh, um, that's kind of you to say. Yeah. So I... I thought we could just kind of get to know you a little bit and mm-hmm. I, I have never asked you before, but, um, you know, when, whenever I would hear you, you speak, I always wondered how you ended up with a bunch of naturopathic hippies around you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> want to hear about that because it is, you have such a strong kind of science background and research background. Um, take me back to the young Dr. Goldenberg. Like when did this all kind of come about? <laughs> Oh, this is fun. So I've never had a, an interview where that was asked before, which is fun, <laughs> which is awesome. Um, so, all right, not to like bore the pants off of everybody, but um, so like the short version is, so I was I was sort of like focused on research. That's what I wanted to do in college. Um, studied molecular biology at Penn and wanted to go like a research route, did research um, as a student. And then the thought was that I was going to do like a PhD program. And um, I was doing a year in a molecular ecology lab as sort of like the quote unquote gap year before grad school. And um, I just hated it. <laughs> like it was terrible. And um, I, it just was not the life that I was looking for. 
Um, and I ended up like, I guess I think I was six months in and I was like, forget it. This is just not, my soul is not happy. And so I ended up like taking all the money I'd saved, um, bought like a rucksack and basically went to Central America. I started in Mexico, made my way down for about a year, just trying to, you know, find myself. I was so sure that I wanted to do research. And then I actually was doing research and I was like, this doesn't feel right. Like, what am I supposed to do with my life? <laughs> that was very, very trite questions. And um, anyway, so I don't know, maybe about half, you know, six months in or something, or, or maybe a little bit later, I, I met someone in Guatemala who, you know, we were talking about this and she was like, I was like, well, you know, I just love science and I love research, but you know, there's something missing and I love herbs. Like I was like, my, my thesis was like on the antimicrobial effects of different herbs that were used in, in um, Native American cultures. And I was like, I love herbal medicine, but you know, I don't want to go to medical school. And, and she just kind of looked at me like I was an idiot. And she's like, well, what about naturopathic doctors? Like, <laughs> why don't you go into that? And I was like, I'd never heard of that. It was all new to me, but it was, I, you know, quickly found the one internet cafe in, in the town and, um, and they, well, town in the village and basically was like, oh my God, like, this is exactly, exactly what I want. And um, I ended up calling, I found like an international payphone. I called Bastyr, like I cold called Bastyr. And they were able to connect me with, I don't even remember who it was, but someone in the research department. And I was like, is this for real? Are you actually doing research? Like, is this, you know, what is this? And, you know, it was intriguing enough. Anyway, long story short, I ended up like submitting applications to all the different naturopathic programs while I was abroad and then came back to do interviews. And, um, and yeah, it just felt great. I mean, we, we both went to Bastyr. Bastyr is a magical place. You know, you go through those woods there and I was like, yes, this is it. Um, and started the naturopathic program and loved it and immediately started doing research there too. So I, I extended it so I could do some research and, and yeah, and that's how I've tried to meld it. Um, and honestly, like Adam, it's been freaking awesome. Like I'm at a point now where it's, I'm doing mostly research and teaching. I, I see patients one day a week and it's awesome. Like I'm doing research that's relevant. That's interesting. Like the gut is insanely fascinating. We're on the cutting edge of like knowledge and clinic and research and commercially available stuff. And it's like, this is exactly where I want to be. And yeah. uh, it's anyway, it's, it's an exciting place to be, but that, so that's a long story, but that's how I got to, um, to doing sort of like the hippie medicine research <laughs> of naturopathic that's, medical research. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's really interesting. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's, it's always interesting to hear the journey here because um, there's sort of like a common thread, but then everybody has like their own, their own kind of path that got them here. Mm -hmm. um, so I know we're going to talk a lot about IBS research or gastroenterology research that you're involved with in a second. Um, I've thought about you a number of times over the last two years, just because, you know, I watch the research that you put out and the papers and the publications. And I, I've wondered just how this last two years has shaped how you view evidence-based medicine like, has it changed your view? Because, I mean, no, I don't think any other time in our history, of, at least in our lifetime, has research just been in the public eye on such yeah. a rapid basis. How has it changed you? Or maybe it hasn't. 
Yeah, so that's that's interesting. I actually I think of it in the reverse, like um, you know, for all the years pre-pan in, in the pre-pandemic world, um, you know, you would often meet with colleagues who are not in in you know naturopathic or natural medicine or functional medicine, and and they would be like, well, you know, you don't have any research on these interventions that you're doing, and and I'd be like, yeah, we, you know, we don't. We've got clinical experience. We're we're actively doing research on this, or maybe we do have some research, but it's preliminary. And this is kind of how we take that early research and apply it clinically in a way that's, you know, cautious but also useful to to patients, et cetera. And um, and that's just what we have to do because we're in a field with a dearth of research. And it's not just naturopathic medicine. It's pediatrics. It's um, pregnancy. There's lots of fields where. We just have very limited, high-quality research for different reasons. Um, but you still have to see the patient in front of you, right? You still need to make make choices. So um, with COVID, it was fascinating because everyone in the world all of a sudden had the same issue. Like, we all had these patients in front of us, and we had zero evidence, like, especially initially. And we didn't know what the hell to do, you know? And we were trying to do the best we could, and clinicians were talking and sharing ideas, and we were doing every, like... The research community, it was really quite amazing. So everyone just scrambled um, across the world to do research on this. But clinically, we didn't we didn't know. We didn't have any high quality evidence and we still had to treat the patients in front of us. And so actually, I think it was it was kind of the flip in that the rest of the world kind of had a situation like like we did. And um, and this is related, but kind of a different point. The I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the World Naturopathic Federation, like most research organizations, uh, was like, we put out a push to get some COVID research. And so they create, they did early on in the pandemic, they gathered all the international naturopathic researchers and was like, we need to help. Like, you know, the, the world needs data. And we quickly prioritized a bunch of different possible interventions and broke off into, you're going to study this, you're going to study this, you're going to study this. And um, actually just last month, um, we were working on zinc as, as a possibility. And so we did a rapid review on zinc for COVID. Um, and that was just published in the BM, in BMJ Open last month. And the whole team of naturopathic researchers just like put out a bunch of research quickly in these rapid reviews to try to get some information out. But, you know, honestly, it, it was fascinating because it was like everyone is kind of seeing what it's like practicing in a dearth of research when you still have to treat. And that was a really interesting experience. Really well said. Yeah, I think naturopaths have always been focused on pathophysiology. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the misconceptions of our profession that we just kind of pull these like crystals out of the sky and, you know, say, hey, try this. We think it might work versus like we think about how the body works and mm -hmm. try to use our tools and therapies and that's kind of, yeah, I think that's what's happened with COVID. People started looking at what receptors are involved and, mm -hmm. you know, all the, the details of what the body was needing to fight this off. So thank you for sharing that. That's, that's excellent. Um, going into talking about the landscape of IBS research that you're involved with, mm -hmm. um, what's it looking like these days? What are, what are you focused on? Um, so... I'm interested in a lot of it. Um, so clinically, I'm almost entirely SIBO. Um, and as you know, of course, like there's lots of IBS-SIBO overlap and mm -hmm. what the heck does IBS mean anyway? And all this all this kind of just from a mechanistic perspective. Um, and so 
you know, a couple years ago, we did a consensus paper, sort of Delphi approach on naturopathic approaches to IBS, which I think was really helpful to orient uh, both myself and my research in that regard, as well as just the field. And the thought was, you know, is there consensus amongst expert naturopaths? So, so people that were like only do, treating IBS, or that was their main specialty. Um, what is there any consensus on what works, what doesn't? Contrasting that with evidence. So that was that was kind of the start. And then we've done a, a bunch since um, biofeedback for IBS, uh, herbal medicine for IBS, um, and then now we're I'm shifting more into the SIBO realm, and I'm particularly fascinated with hydrogen sulfide SIBO. We were yeah. talking about that a little bit. Um, and so we're in the middle of a registry study on that and, and a couple systematic reviews have already popped out of that those early results that are now underway. And so it's already like generating more and more stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, the it's just fascinating. The more and more you look at this, like you get niched out, which is a limitation. But on the, on the flip side, it's like the digger, the, the, the deeper you go digging, it's like, whoa, <laughs> this is so cool. And there's like no one studying this and we need data pronto. And so it's like all these different research ideas. It's like, okay, what do we do? What's high yield? Um, how do we get some information out there, et cetera? Yeah, because, you know, like with hydrogen sulfide, for example, hydrogen sulfide overgrowth in the intestine, like a test came out, right? Um, in the mm -hmm. last 20, 2020, I think. Mm -hmm. or, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, and so now we have all these clinicians that are tracking hydrogen sulfide overgrowth and need to know what to do about it. Yeah, uh, exactly. And so and that's what um, sort of instigated the study on our part is this dramatic increase in interest in because of the, the test availability. But also um, you just had hundreds and probably thousands of clinicians treating tens of thousands of patients now based on hydrogen sulfide levels. And so it was this, and, and we, we have like zero data on hydrogen sulfide. Like there's like next to nothing on hydrogen sulfide SIBO. Um, and so it was like, wow, we need to know what's going on. Cause you have this, also this very wonderful natural experiment where hundreds of clinicians, thousands of clinicians are actually measuring hydrogen sulfide levels and tracking symptoms. And if there's any way to aggregate that and and find useful information that can lead to more rigorous study designs that would be awesome and that was the the registry basically trying to get you know hundreds of different um case reports all into one database you know uh, what were the levels what was the response what was used what was the dose you know what were the concomitant symptoms and and basically look for clear signals uh that could help clinicians and also drive future research so we're in the middle of that now and it's already kind of we're, we've got about 100 cases now and it's already very interesting findings it's already like i said spun off a couple secondary research studies and um it's neat you know like clinicians are out there like you have to be and they're they're discovering all sorts of things and they're treating and it's it's almost a way of of leveraging that knowledge and aggregating it in a way that we can then reflect back to the community of clinicians and say okay this is what you guys are doing this seems to be working, this doesn't, this, we're going to look a little bit deeper and, and just kind of keep that close connection between clinicians and research as, as the ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to circle back to that if we have time and learn more about the study in a little more details. Um, the thing that I've always appreciated in hearing you speak is just sort of the, 
the key variables that you discuss when looking at research. And I know you spend a lot of time educating other clinicians on how to be more evidence-based in practice. Um, one of my mentors, Dr. Um, Pizzorno, who I don't know, I'm sure you've crossed paths with him. Is, you know, he always discusses like going straight to the table and really mm -hmm. focusing on the table instead of like getting lost in the commentaries and the influences of the, the authors. So I, I think it's a good practice to kind of weed out what variables that you would look for in a research study. And I just love to hear your thoughts about like, when you look at a table, when it, apply, when it comes to applying clinical research in the natural, natural medicine world, what are, what are some of the things that you've found useful? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so that's, a, that's, a, I think that's good advice. Like go to the, go to the results section, go to the data tables you're going to get a lot of spin in the discussion section, right? That, you know, um, the abstract and the discussion is notorious for spin. So I think it makes sense to like actually look at the results. Um, you know, I think there are key things to look for in research papers in general, like across all of medicine, like major issues that, you know, there's some tips um, that we can totally talk about and we should. Um, and then there's also, you know, over the years of teaching integrative uh, doctors and soon to be doctors and fellows, how to read um, research papers and critically analyze them, you know, there's a few areas that time and time again look like they're important and unique to, not like unique, unique to us, but very common, commonly shows up in, in, in natural medicine. So um, maybe I'll talk about those first because that's probably more of interest. So first thing I would say is, so industry funding is a major issue across medicine, right? So uh, industry sponsorship bias, you know, basically company pays for the research of their own product and, you know, it's not so surprising. And this became really obvious through uh, big pharma decades ago and sort of was un uncovered and, and there were ghost writers that were happening. Basically you would have like these companies pay for these studies, have ghost writers write it up that were employees of the company and then, you know, put a few other people on it. I mean, it was it was really, really, really shady. There weren't standards in reporting funding and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, it turns out like it was, it was the, the medicine in general was just like rife with this stuff. And um, and, then, and since then, the research community has done a lot to fix that. And I would say in general, your large studies are really, even if they're funded by industry, there's so many safeguards in place that I'm no longer really worried about that. Um, What's interesting is it seems like the the nutraceutical world, the sort of small pharma, <laughs> is is still stuck. Twenty years ago, you, mm. you're still seeing nutraceutical companies, you know, uh, publishing their own research. The the owners of the company are literally the authors on the paper. Um, obvious spin, um, and 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 not even and and not even claiming conflict of interest when it's like dead obvious with like a single Google search, right? Um, and so I just see that time and time again with, with natural products. So what I would say is first thing to look for is who are the authors, who are they affiliated with? So that's going to be like, you know, you get the, the title then you have all the authors and then help their affiliation. So don't just skip over that part, look at it and, and see if things look suspicious, right? Are they all universities or do some things look like they might be companies? You know, what's the product that's being studied? Do some quick Google searches you know, is this company the company that makes the product? Um, look for the conflict of interest statements, but don't trust them um, because they're just often it's like there's no peer review. It's basically like authors, please give the conflict of interest statement. The authors say we have none. 
and then it just gets published. Yeah. Um, and then look for look for funding statements, but don't trust it. And so, yeah, I would say you know that's definitely um, a one one to look for. Um, the other, there's two others quickly, and then I'll I'll shut up for, for for questions. But the other is we have major blinding issues with herbs. So even if something says it's a randomized controlled trial, double blind. If if you if it's studying lavender essential oil in a capsule, like we know as as natural medicine practitioners that there's no way to keep that blind. That is going to be unmasked with the first capsule that pops open and you start burping lavender, right? It's going to be very obvious who's got placebo and who doesn't. So if they say it's double blind and it's an herb, don't trust it. Use your experience as clinicians. Be like, that herb has a very potent smell. That herb mm -hmm. has, you know, you, you'd burp that up in an instant. You'd get heartburn. Like, so would that blind really stay, right? That would be the other thing. And then the third that I usually tell people to look for, which isn't obvious, but is important for us is, is straw man comparators. So mm. basically um, you see this a lot with industry funded research where it's not a placebo control. It's, it's some form of active control, but under dose, basically it's like, well, we know drug X works for this condition and we're going to compare our herb to drug X, but we're going to use a tiny little dose of drug X and, and we're going to say, oh, they, they are equivalent. Therefore, it's as good as, um, which is not necessarily true. So just be cautious. Like when you look at the comparison, if it's not a placebo, ask yourself, well, why did they use that as a comparison? And is that dosed right? Why would they do that? Does that make sense clinically? So I'd say those are the three um, things that are specific to our world that you know, one should look for in a study. Interesting. And then, you know, when we speak about some of the IBS research that's out there, um, how much of it is, I mean, this is sort of a general question, but how much of the research out there is world is more associative? Um, or do we actually understand mechanistically why these things do or don't work? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I guess it depends on depends on the type of intervention you're talking about. So like microbiome stuff, it's like essentially all association studies. Um, and we don't have very good intervention studies where it's like, okay, the microbiome looks like this. You use this and see what happens clinically, right? Um, and so what you do have a lot of like, an overwhelming amount, so much so that it's like impossible to make sense of it is, oh, well, disease X is associated with this form of dysbiosis. Um, and I don't know how, how useful that is clinically. We don't know if A causes B or B causes A, or there's a commonality C or, you know, what, what is, or if it's just completely irrelevant. Right. And also what, and no one ever talks about like the magnitude, right? So it's like, okay, it's associated, like there's a P value there that's significant, statistically significant, but does that mean that everyone with this microbiome picture is going to have IBD or whatever. Um, and then also, is it predictive? So, you know, if you've got IBD, you know, you have IBD, right? So what's, what's the value there? What you're really curious about is prediction um, of upcoming disease and, or if you've got this profile, this is a better intervention for it, you know, type of thing. So we don't have those useful studies that we need. Um, other, the, the things that we have studies on are less mechanistic and more, when you take people with IBS, quote unquote, 
and give them X, like what happens? Like standard randomized trials. The problem with that is like, as you know, IBS is probably five or six or 12 different things that cause symptoms that yeah. meet this criteria. And so, I mean, it was, it's always surprising. You know, my favorite thing is, and I'm probably going on a tangent, but have you, have you seen that, that, that BMJ paper? It was 2008 Ted Kapchuk out of Harvard, the placebo IBS paper. Have you seen that? Are you familiar with that? No, I'll take okay. a look at it and put that up in the show notes though. Please do indulge me two seconds to explain, right? So basically, Ted Kapchuk is this like brilliant guy. He runs the the placebo lab at Harvard. He used to be in traditional. He was like an acupuncturist. He went to China in the '60s. He wrote the web that has no weaver. Like he's a really yeah. fascinating guy, and he's become obsessed with the placebo effect. And so he did this brilliant study where um, he he gave people with IBS. He gave them either they had them weightless control. So, oh, you're going to be enrolled in the study. You start next month, but let's look at your vitals or your your, your levels. Another group that got um, sham acupuncture, so not true acupuncture, but sham acupuncture with minimal physician contact. And then a third group that got sham acupuncture with like warm and embracing, you know, physician contact. And what he showed was this step. So there was no true intervention here, right? It was just different levels of, you know, what we would call derogatorily placebo effect, but should really call uh, non, you know, non-specific effects. Um, anyway, so long story short, he showed like the stepped progression of, of, of the effect size as you increase that those non-specific effects. And at the upper level, you were getting a 50% response. I mean, that's insane. Mm -hmm. So you have a 50% placebo response with IBS, which is massive, which is better than any other drug in the history of humankind for IBS. Vaxamin right? <laughs> has like a 9% or 11% effect size, right? right? So it's just absolutely nuts. Um, and so when you've got something that's a 50% placebo response and the best drugs are 10%, like that's what we're kind of dealing with. And my thought on that is it's not that the drugs are bad, but it's like maybe only a third of those people with IBS had small intestinal overgrowth that would be treated with rifaximin, right? And everyone else just didn't. So when you average it out, you know, you're going to have these low overall response rates. But um, I think I'm on a tangent. But so I, I guess to answer your question, like it, the research is all over the place and it really depends on, you know, what type of research, what type of intervention, but also more importantly, at least to me, it's like, what's the population? Like, I just feel like there's so much heterogeneity when you classify people as like Rome criteria IBS, that it's, it's somewhat meaningless to me um, to know how does that guide treatment, right? What's more yeah. interesting to me is, you know, do I think your IBS is driven by SIBO? Do I think your IBS is driven by large intestinal dysbiosis? And then I feel like we can get more targeted with interventions. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, as you're describing IBS as a heterogeneous disorder, there's so many different subsets of it. And we have a long way to go to understand who's going to respond to what and why. Right. Um, but it does, you know, also shed light to that, you know, the Rome Foundation has classified IBS as a um, brain gut disorder. And that the therapeutic um, intervention of a you know, of a caring practitioner that's going to give the patient time, help alleviate their anxiety and their stress around food or uh, is, is key. And I, I'm really glad that you pointed out that paper because, I mean, that's, that's, I think, one of the reasons why naturopathic physicians are so successful in helping people with IBS is because we spend time with the patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're maximizing mm -hmm. those 
you know, non-specific effects, but actually that is part of the medicine. And sometimes in IBS, that's probably the majority of the medicine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of attention, care, listening. And if you're just handing someone a piece of paper and say, follow these 10 things, um, it only gets you so far. Yeah. Here's the FODMAP <laughs> diet, you know, bad, yeah. bad um, photocopy, see it a year. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And all those patients end up on, in our office with yeah. frustrated. Um, mm -hmm. So is there, you know, a, cue, a few key variables that I, I, that we can zoom in on? Like, you know, there's OR and there's NNT. And when you're, when you're say, looking at a new study on a probiotic intervention, um, you know, you've already kind of laid the, the bigger foundation, you know, as far as like what to look for. But like if we're zooming in on those, obviously, you know, you talked about p-value and, but some of these others that we use to describe to patients, like if you take this, this is what we would expect to happen. And this mm -hmm. is in, in, in people who are experiencing a similar problem, this is what resulted when using this therapy. Can you kind of zoom in on that? Because I think those are the conversations that really matter in a mm -hmm. clinical setting. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's a million dollar question. Um, so from a research perspective, from an evidence-based medicine perspective, the whole world is shifting towards or should be shifting towards absolute effects, right? That we shouldn't be saying things like there's a 50% reduction. Um, we should say, you know, we should be talking in absolutes, right? Like, you know, 5% of people, you know, five people out of a thousand um, will have will have this disease compared to seven people out of a thousand, right? Like that's those sort of absolute counts, absolute numbers are more honest um, and tend to not oversell it. Um, so, and that's where NNT was, and we can dive into this if, if you think your audience is uh, less familiar with these concepts, but that's where NNT numbers needed to treat came from, is to try to take these absolute effects and translate it in a way that patients would get. So, you know, if, um, let's do like a, like a quick example. So let's say there's um, a 10% chance that you're going to get um, a disease, that you're going to get a heart attack, right? And, and you take some herb and um, instead of 10 out of 100 people getting a heart attack, five out of 100 people end up getting a heart attack, right? So you've taken 10 out of 100 and you brought it down to five out of 100. So you've dropped the risk by 50%. So that sounds super impressive, right? So you say it cuts the risk in half. It's super, you know, it's amazing, 50% reduction. And that's all true in relative terms, right? Um, but if you talk about absolute effects, you're taking 10% of people getting a disease to 5% of people getting a disease. So the difference is 5%. So like an absolute risk reduction of, of 5%. Um, and meanwhile, you have to treat you know, 20 people to have one person benefit. So that's what the NNT is. It just does the inverse of the absolute risk reduction. So anyway, so, so we used to think as clinicians that, aha, this is it. You go into the patient and you say, Mr. and Mrs. Patient, you don't no longer say it's a 50% reduction. You say, if I treated 20 people just like you with this drug or this herb or this diet, I would prevent one extra case of a heart attack in five years, right? And it made so much sense and we were so excited. And then it turns out patients hate that. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's not intuitive. And um, they actually, there's a there's actually a, a paper on it, like looking at patients' response to NNTs, like they don't get it. Um, and so it's, and I, that's, that parallels my clinical experience, right? Like I used to come in and try to bring these evidence-based discussions 
into clinic and it was just like not helpful and i just got the same response which was uh okay well what would you do like what would you tell you know your mother your father who had this right um and so i honestly think that clinic there needs to be some magic in clinic like there needs to be intuition you need to have trust and dialogue and know your patient and yeah if you've got the engineer type who wants the data and wants the equations like you should be doing nnts absolute risk reduction showing them the papers telling them the follow-up time period um but if it's if that's not your patient and you have a relationship with them and you feel like you know it makes more sense to talk about it in other ways i think that makes sense too and honestly i think I think a good evidence-based doc is still a doc, right? And so they they know all those numbers, but then when they're in clinic with a real human being that they know, they know how to translate that appropriately and have that conversation and and take the response to guide it. So um, I don't know. I think I'm on a tangent. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but no, you clinic, are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I think I think it's different between clinic and, and research. Um, and I think clinicians should understand those numbers. And when they're reading papers, like I want them to be furious when there's no absolute numbers reported, right? When there's just an, an odds ratio, an OR or, or a, a risk reduction, or risk ratio, RR. I want them to be furious. I want them to say, well, what's the absolute difference here? Like, what does this actually translate to? Because that I think clinicians should have a better grasp of to balance risks, risk profiles, et cetera, um, and cost, et cetera. But, but yeah, that you still need to have that intuition and um, caring ability to interact in a room with another human being and, and read the room, <laughs> you know, know, know what's going how that information is best translated to your patient. Yeah. And I think a lot of that behind that comes with the, clinician's confidence in what their recommendations are. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if the clinicians um, understands as much as they can about the therapy that's being recommended um, and has obviously experience using it, then that, in a sense, is the most valuable reassuring aspect to a patient that has already had trust established. Mm-hmm. I think when it comes to the criticism is more like, you know, naturopathic physicians and research like yourself presenting this data to like a room of skeptics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's when, that's when this really gets uh, pushed. Yeah. It's um, I, I find that usually humorous. I mean, irritating, <laughs> but humorous. like the, the people, like if it's a real scientist talking to you, you know, you're, it's a shared language, but if it's like a like a skeptic or an advocate or someone who who has a, a, an axe to grind, you know, they seem to at least in my experience like very unfamiliar with how most research the state of most research like things that are you know quote unquote accepted the vast majority like if you look at grade levels or evidence levels it's like very low or low, you know um, classic example, you know uh, anyway anyway like oh, and the effect sizes are like tiny. And so things that are like fully accepted, like, um, you know, don't eat a lot of red meat. There's a, there's a really famous paper that came out uh, a couple of years ago now, which basically showed like, even though everyone knows that it's an evidence-based statement to say, you know, avoid red meat, when you actually like do a high quality review of the research, it's like very minuscule effects. And the quality of the evidence is like very low or low. 
And it's like, that is the state of research for most things. And so to have, to have someone be, you know, really upset that you don't have like 10,000 people RCT on, on an herb is, is kind of laughable. I mean, yeah. like, really, are you not familiar with the state of most research? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And it echoes my experience when I'm speaking to like true scientists that are doing real research about what I do. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they're the most open-minded discussions I ever have with anybody. Yeah. Because yeah. they're curious, they want to learn, they realize that they don't know everything, and they realize that science is a process of learning and adjusting and adapting and and reformulating. And if if you're if you make your mind up about something that you don't know before you even know about it, that's not science. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That so so this is so true. Um, and I'm thinking we should probably have like a second discussion because this is this is getting juicy. But um, I think. It's like scientifically, I think of the world in confidence intervals, right? It's so, so like if something works, like what, what the hell does that mean, right? So it's like, no, you have, you know, maybe there's statistical significance that there's an effect, but like the actual effect is within a some sort of confidence interval. And that's constantly changing. And so whenever anyone tells me anything with certainty about medicine or science, I know immediately that they're not a scientist, right? Because scientists don't think like that. They think about bias and, and and ranges and confidence intervals and and not just point estimates. And they know that point estimates change all the time. So I think that's important too. You, and I think you all all doctors need to be flexible um, with how we look at evidence and basically say, right now, the best evidence suggests X. Let's be honest and know that in five years, that may change. And we will, you know, good evidence-based medicine is rapid dissemination of new data and we will change our guidelines, right? And mm -hmm. so if you look at uh, really good guidelines, for example, like that use grade appropriately, what you'll see is they'll make a statement like, yes, do this drug or do this herb or whatever, but they have a grade statement about the confidence in that recommendation. And it's almost always very low or low. And that it speaks to the truth, which is it's, it will be very easy to change this recommendation with the next study that comes out versus high level certainty in a recommendation where it's like, you can you could publish two new papers tomorrow with ten thousand people each, and there's just no way it's going to shift our confidence in this effect that it's worthwhile or not, right? And that I think has been revolutionary in in evidence based medicine is to have these comp, you know um, certainty of evidence statements connected to the recommendation, and that's I think a piece that's been missing for a really long time because people would just hang on to the recommendation and say science says X. And, and then everything else is forgotten, which is not how science works. Yeah, yeah. I like the new term in science that I've you know, been hearing, like power factor of studies. Like, I think that's where things are going is, you know, mm -hmm. the, you know and uh, helping us kind of stay in that, that, that place of observation. So um, I know you have to have to go soon and um, we definitely need to do another one of these um, at mm -hmm. some point. That's fun. Yeah. I feel like we're just getting into the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'd love for you to just kind of uh, wrap up this particular mm -hmm. visit with us with just, um, just some kind of take home messages and just to hear more about how people can follow your work and some of the things you're doing and just kind of guide us. And, and, you know, I know you're a clinician and a researcher just to kind of hear more about like how people can get in touch with you and, and uh, consult with you. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, so I wear, I wear lots of different hats. So um, from a research perspective, 
you know, you can find my research on PubMed. Um, just, you know, do a search for Joshua Goldenberg. Um, most of my research comes out of HealthGot, which is associated with NUNM, which is the National University up in, um, in Portland, Oregon, and then also Texas A&M. Um, and then teaching, I teach at AIHM. So if you're a clinician and interested in doing a fellowship mm. in integrative medicine, um, they have a, a, a multidisciplinary fellowship there. It's amazing. It's a really cool program. And I teach the evidence evaluation courses there. Um, and then and I teach uh, advanced evidence synthesis at HealthGot um, a couple times a year as well. It's like a three-day extravaganza of nerdiness. It's fabulous. I absolutely love it. We dive into the stats of meta-analysis and evidence synthesis and all this cool stuff. Um, and then clinically, so um, I mostly see patients with IBS and SIBO, but other GI conditions too. And that's at the Goldenberg GI Center. And um, you can probably put a link at the bottom if that's all right with you. Yeah. And what else? Oh, and then um, I run a small like <laughs> side project since uh, like the last year of naturopathic school, but um, Dr. Journal Club, which I was yeah. basically when I was a student at, so in, in undergrad, when you're doing, um, you know, science, there's always journal club and I always loved journal club. And then I got to naturopathic school and they didn't have a journal club. And I was like, I, I need a journal club. So we, we started a journal club and then I graduated and I was like, well, what am I gonna do now? <laughs> so I ended up building this, this website called Dr. Journal Club where for, you know, integrative medicine, uh, docs and providers to, to, to basically have journal club. And that's kind of evolved. Now we have CEUs and stuff. So you can also find me um, and, and learn about evidence evaluation, et cetera, on uh, drjournalclub.com as well. And I think that's that's mostly it. Awesome. Well, I know you're really busy and I know you're running to a, a conference right now on hydrogen sulfide SIBO. So I um, want to let you kind of get settled in and, and do that. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for being on. And I look forward to catching up with you down, down the road. Anytime. Super fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these, the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from the forward the, the episode to them, and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here.